Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue. I am the director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in rainy Salinas, but uh, we don't have any uh, monopoly on rain these days as we record this episode. And once again, joined by uh, my good friend and partner, Candace Wilson. Candace, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Terrific. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, our guest today, Tom Mohan, who's the CEO of Mohan uh, Citrus. I like oranges, but you know, when you start thinking about citrus, you start thinking about spring, and right about now, we probably all are, with all the weather we've been having. Tom, welcome, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Dennis and Candace. Nice uh, to be invited. Thank you. We always try and do a little research on who we're going to visit with, and you know, when I a lot of people have a checkered past, you do not. Uh, you <laughs> really have. Uh, when I look through your uh, bio and website, I, I mean. Your involvement in all things citrus is very impressive, and we certainly want to talk about that. But, you know, you just also have had kind of an interesting journey to starting uh, your farming operations in the San Joaquin Valley. So talk a little bit about your background and your journey to where you are, and then we're going to follow that up with, let's hear a little bit about your family, because, you know, in many respects, I mean, you're almost the positive prototype, quintessential Western Growers uh, multi-generational family farm and how all that plays into what you do. So that's a lot, but let's just start with your past and how you got to what you're doing today. Well, thank you, Dennis. And let me start with, the beginning was uh, basically I was three years old and I was with my three other sisters and my dad put us in the station wagon with mom and moved us up to a little town called Orange Cove. And so we had come out of the LA basin and moved to where now there was just pastures. It was basically fences and sheep and cows. And it was an area that hadn't been developed for agriculture yet here in the San Joaquin Valley in the year of 1955. So what had happened that the Frank Kern Canal had been just about finished for two or three years and irrigation systems had now started being spread off of the canal itself into areas that agriculture could be developed. So this was kind of the beginning of the federal water project. And so being a little boy, I didn't really know where I was going. It was just a place to go ride my donkey and and to <laughs> and play in the. And so, Dad started the farm at that time with black, uh, black-eyed beans, and he did some milo, and we started raising cotton, and he eventually then started doing the citrus. So by the time he started doing the citrus in the late fifties, I was seven years old, and I started understanding what farming was from that point of view. So to your point, the remarkable part of it is, is I'm still in that same location doing the same thing that I did starting then. So that progression has just been the unfolding of the agricultural world inside of California itself, in a sense, and the vision that, that I've been able to see. So that's but kind I'm, of a beginning. I'm guessing you're yeah. still not riding donkeys, though, right? No, 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 no. We have a little, well, we went to the three-wheelers and those are outlawed. So then we went to four-wheelers. Okay, there, there you go. Candace, that We're was the first. That. I think that's the first time we've heard anyone riding a donkey. Oh, <laughs> for sure. That's the first, for sure. So with that backdrop, I'm really struck by two things in terms of your family. One, one how, you know, you can tell when you look at the website and then just knowing you and knowing Heather, how important family is in the operation. But I also get the impression it really matters in terms of doing business in terms of the nature of your operation. So that's number one. But then, you know, your fourth generation, there's really a history of innovation in your whole family. I think starting with your grandfather, right? In LA and just 
that's really care. It's either in the genes or uh, you, 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 you all learned it from one generation to the next. Well, I, you know, generational pass downs are remarkable, you know, from the Vanderbilts to the Rockefellers to whichever layer you want to look at it and how it goes. But in the fact of it is, is that you have to have something that's of interest. And I think agriculture, we have the best opportunity to do a generational attribute to help people in the families learn that the next generation is just as important as the one before because feeding the people is so important. And so for me, the fact is that it's two-toned. I was too lazy to do anything else other than what I had learned since I was a little kid. So that was the good part about it is I did learn as a young kid and can take it on for the rest of my life. And I think that in the case of Heather, she gets to do the same as when I'm gone, there's somebody there to take over this same farm that's been there for this length of period. My father took the farm away from Los Angeles because urban sprawl had taken over the San Fernando Valley at that time. And there was no room for that generation to farm any longer. So to have a second and third and fourth generation on the same spot in the San Joaquin Valley was an ambition of my father's when he said, I want to go someplace that will never be developed. And that more or less did that into the San Joaquin Valley in the fringes of the areas where we are now. So that's a real opportunity for even the next generation to come in. And the second part of that is, is you really need a product that's going to be sustainable to pass on to the generations that you would see and think that that's the most important thing. So in the fact that this is agriculture, it is citrus, it's a very important product. We should keep that going long and after the rest of us have, have had our time with it. And so for me, it's kind of exciting to be able to pass this on and you know, relinquish it and not own it any further. And that, I think generations are good and very important to what we're talking about. Tell yeah. us, because you don't have a very checkered background and you've consistently been part of the family farm, take us on a journey of the evolution of the farm and, you know, some of the key milestones that you achieved, some of the key decision points and, you know, how the farm has changed over the years. Right. That's a good point. Because when I more or less went to school, which I, I went to college and I earned a degree in environmental studies and urban planning, which had nothing to do with agriculture. And I wasn't ambitious about coming back to the farm because I saw how my father had worked hard and what it took. And so then I thought I would go on a tangent. But what happened is we were in a drought in 1976, which was the first stages of drought. And my father was needing some help on the farm. And I went back to help him at that point. And I, I more or less never left. But at that point, when we were in the drought in 1976, we had a group of Israelis came over to the farm and start discussing with us the ability to be able to use low volume irrigation, which was the most pivotal part of agriculture ever, is when PVC and polyethylenes and polybutylenes were put into the ability to put hoses and drip irrigations and controlled irrigation systems versus the furrow irrigation, which the whole agricultural valley had been set up on a 1% grade to provide for furrow irrigation and massive amounts of water used. So now we made this transition and it, it was very poignant for the fact that my father was struggling in the drought. And then I was able then to help him put in an irrigation system straight out of college, not knowing how to glue pipe or how to dig a ditch or do any of these things. And so those transitional, that transitional time helped me see the parts of agriculture that I learned to enjoy, which was hard work, long hours, hot sun, cold winters. But the reward was that you were doing something. And the reward is that you have a product at the end of the day that's very good and uh, very enjoyed by so many people. 
So the transition was a big part of the never taking an agricultural class to just jumping in and doing it on a daily basis, continuing that and to where the point was, okay, what's the next step? And so the educational process was good for me to know that I was able to go to the next step or to look for the next step and to see the transition. And as this was in irrigation in 1976, to see that we could now do this kind of irrigation system. What does that mean for production? What does that mean for, you know, as we go along to the paradigm of farming? And so it was kind of organic change, how it just happened naturally. But I think part of it is, is to be able to see it happening and breathe that, make that part of your breathing, part of your whole life. And so that was one of my ambitions, how to make a better sprayer, how to do the job better, how to improve upon the projects that I had done previously, learning from my childhood through the farm and into where we are today. And so this is one of the main steps of it. Virtually the greatest step in my business and where I went, though, is that my father had started raising citrus when he started the farm. And I learned it in 4-H and had grown trees that during that time period, when I came back, I had that to fall back on for my college. And I knew how to do that already. And so I persisted with that being inside the nursery organizations and the fact that we were growing the trees and then doing the orchards and then eventually evolving to the selling and marketing of the fruit, uh, which was, was later on in my life that I brought into those as an ambition to do more than what I was doing normally. And so it's an evolutionary process, but it's, again, one thing about farming, I'll guarantee you, if you do it this year, you're going to do it again next year. It's just the way it is. You know, you could say it's a repeat and repeat, repeat and repeat story as we go through <laughs> this thing. And, and that's kind of where I got is that the nursery practice, if you start a seed, it's kind of a hope and a prayer. Is it going to grow? Is it going to grow? And it does. And it has every time. And so that's the marvel of this farming that kept me and keeps me going is that it's like a gift from God that we're able to do these little funny things and predict it that, yes, you do plant that seed. Yes, if you take care of it and nurture it, it will provide you with some food. And that's been one of the rewards that I've had as I've gone through it. The major reward is that, you know, the, the ability for us to harvest fruit put it into the market and see the pleasure that other people get and the necessity of it as well. And so that's part of farming that the aspect that I really enjoy is uh, the end result. So we talk a lot about different technologies. We spend a lot of time with startups on Voices of the Valley and kind of sharing the grand ideas. And what are some of the technologies that you feel like have made the biggest impact on your farm over the years? And then as you look at the landscape today, what are you looking forward to trialing? And you know, what do you think is really going to make a difference going forward? I think to your point is the advancements in agriculture as I've gotten to see them are pretty, very remarkable. There's two parts of it. Part of it is the horticultural part of it. And part of it is the mechanical part of it. Because the horticultural part is the part where you take genetics and you can improve the genetics or you can improve the plant. And you can do that. And I'd put the horticultural part in it as we get better with our fertilizers and the ability to keep the plant healthy in the environment in which we're growing it. The second part is the mechanical part of it. As I just noted, the greatest technology and innovation that ever took place in agriculture is the invention of the PVC, the irrigation tubing, the ability to use plastic, taking us out of the metal world into the plastic world is the biggest advancement that's happened. And so there's a lot of ramifications of that from you know the savings of water, the ability to distribute water evenly to get the timing of it. And in that part, I'll stay with the mechanical part of it. And so now to a point where we can go out there and we were just to create a gate valve to open and close water systems instead of putting boards inside a weir 
to gauge your water. Now we could put a gate valve. We have mechanics to open and close. So we have different mechanisms. We had different distributions and that's, and it's gone further to that to where now we have where we run and open close all of the irrigation valves and operate all of the irrigation from our office on a computer, which is all wireless out to the different locations where we need water. And we have sensitivities of, of different techniques that can now tell us when and how much water we should be putting on those plants according to the ET or the growth of the plant. As we see, it's shrinking during the day. Well, we better give it water so it doesn't shrink further. And so that technology, that interfacing of that is really the most remarkable place where I've gotten to today. And is there an ease of that? Yes, there is. Is there a dependency on that? Yes, there is. So as the evolution of technique and, and innovation comes along, it becomes the way of life and we have to accept that. And so that's a huge hurdle if you were trying to introduce this and go back to the future and start you know, out with the guy that was planting the seed and had to have a tank and a hose to water his plant. So now the fact that we are able to do that in a timely fashion and do it on a daily basis or on an hourly basis or you know whatever level we are. So it's been a huge draw in that in the innovation technology world and, and mainly the irrigation. Irrigation is still the number one project we have in agriculture. It will be and always it will be is how do you put water onto the plant? Part two of that is then when in monoculture, we have the innovations in monoculture inherently creates its own problem, which is then you get pest problems, whether it's microbiology or whether it's uh, insects or it can be mammals, but they'll come in and they'll cause havoc because now they have a predictability. If you eat a certain product, you're going to want to keep going there and you're going to be in abundance of procreation. So that's what insects do. And so now we have created the perfect opportunity for the insects. Well, we now have to create the mechanics to protect ourselves against them. So monoculturing is a love-hate relationship with the fact that now I've got to thwart the insects. Well, how do I do that? When I came back from school, we were still using DDT. We were still using nicotine. We were still using some chloridane and some of the worst chemicals that the, the chemists had come up with because they were easy, cheap organic oxalates that could be produced. Uh, they were the first molecules that were used of high predictability, but they didn't know the ramification of them. So in that sense, in the chemical world, we've been able to go ahead and go forward with the ability to find better chemistry, find a molecule that's more specific to those insects that we have now created these massive amounts of insects that have had their preferences to certain lab materials. And so now we can go specifically try to kill those. And so we're getting better with our chemistry at the same time. So that's a huge step of innovation is the ability to be able to go, whether you do it organically, which we did is when we tried insect against insect, you can manage that to a certain point, but insects will always, always leave a remainder so that they don't eat their last bite. And so in other words, you'll never finish off the problem that you have. But meanwhile, we use a lot of techniques, put a lot of arrows in our quiver to go and take care of the insect world, which is our biggest problem that we have, whether insect or virus or whatever biology it is, is going after the monoculture. And so we keep finding ways to help solve this problem. And it's, it's never going to go away. We're always going to have it. But what we tend to forget is the end result is that you're fighting the one insect problem, but you've probably taken care of others that weren't a problem that is the demise of them. And I'm going to give you an example because this is a history lesson also is that when I was a child, I would listen at night to the crickets. And there was such an abundance of crickets at night. It was the greatest 
noise that you would want to listen to are the crickets. And I haven't heard a cricket in the San Joaquin Valley for 10, 15 years, 20 years since we started using the insect killers. So there's an action reaction that we have to always remember with predictability as well. Whenever we do something to take care of a problem, it may be solving your problem, but it could be creating some other uh, situations along with it. And so I don't want to ever lose sight of that one in our innovation, because we want to continue looking for better ways of doing things, but we better look backwards and see what we've done to alter the natural course that was there beforehand and know that we were the effectual part of that demise. And so as we go, I know we have a direction and we got to keep feeding the world and we're going to keep continuing in technology now with better spraying systems. So, and that's the mechanics, the tractors, we can drive and do things with tractors now that we've never been able to do. We used to use a rope to put a straight line in a field, and now we use GPS. There's a big difference when you look at that, and we have machines that will plant the plants now instead of doing it by hand. So all the mechanics that we've created have made improvements in manpower and our ability to do more as we move along as well. And that's important because I think the function of our abilities to do it more massively is good, and we should continue with that. And uh, I don't know where it's going to be from here as we go to the next step, because each horticultural plant has its different specifications and requirements. So you can't apply one technology from one plant material to another. So in the technology world, I think in the mechanics, those are, those are the major ones is the irrigation and then the ability for us to be able to go out and take care of our pest problems, whatever they are. And I don't know how we're going to get to the point where we can hydroponically grow everything. We're not going to master that one yet. So we're still going to need dirt and the three basics, water, soil, and sunshine. And so without those three, we're not going to be able to keep going forward. So uh, jump in and ask a no, 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 a question, because what you what you've laid out, how much of that in terms of automation, orchard design? I'm really intrigued by the whole breeding process. How do you think of things in terms of am I breeding uh, for taste? Am I you know, I know from an automation standpoint, there's an issue of, you know, how do you separate the fruit from the tree? You know, so how, how do you think about all that? Yeah. Okay. That's the horticultural side of of innovation. Okay. Thanks. I'm finished with the mechanical. There's probably a few more mechanical innovations that we can look at, but the horticultural innovation is remarkable. That's to me from where I've grown up at the grocery store. And I looked at, you know, what we were giving on a head of iceberg lettuce to where now we can have 30 lettuces of choice. And there was one tomato that we got. And now there's 15, 20 tomatoes to do that. So how, what does horticultural innovation look like? Very good question, because I think that the horticultural manifestation is driven by two parts, one curiosity and one that people have this innate passion to have something they don't have. Everybody wants something bigger, better. It's manifest destiny. It's just the way it is. And whether it's in the flavors and the colors and the shapes and the sizes and all the stuff that you can create in your mind, it's the human being that's looking for those changes. And so then that stimulates and the scientists and the people out there to go do these horticultural changes. Now, Mendel started just discovering the genetics of it when he looked at the different chromosomes and the things are really important about the predictability of changing plant materials that we went on. So the horticultural innovation is something that's not brand new, 
but it, it was derived for a couple of reasons. Again, one, the curiosity, and number two, to help it more productive. And so being more productive had to go back to the health of the plant. The plant had to be more robust and it had to carry on for the longer period of time to provide more food back to the days in the weeds that we were selecting different seeds. So those innovations were done by historic knowledge and the ability to go out and predict what you're going to get back to the point of planting a seed, what's going to come out of it. And then the other part is, is that we learn from our lessons. And so as those lessons of which ones plant, which ones need more care and which ones need less care. And then those were big points of interest at the beginning of how we do that. But the scientists have really gone in there and changed this world as far as how do you go select something to make improvements. And there's a curiosity in my field versus the fields of wheat and corn and strawberries and blueberries, as all those have been able to be cross-pollinated, cross-created by science, and they've been able to improve it. Soybean was genetically modified and was able to improve it. But in the world of citrus, is if we look at all the products that we have on the shelves today, none of those have ever been created by man. They were all created by God. God's always been out there making a variant. And man's only intersection is the fact that he goes out and selects it and saw that it was better. And he clones it and makes it become something. So in all the science and all the breeding programs that we have in the United States, we have in the world, China, everywhere that I've gotten to visit, we haven't found any selections that was man-made that is successful in today's market. And so in the global market, as we see it, And so there's a curiosity in citrus in that sense versus the blueberries where they've got now, which is a relatively new product by sense of marketing. And we probably have 10 different blueberries that we've been hybridized that will then take less water, more water, bigger berries, smaller berries, higher temperatures, lower temperatures, et cetera. And those have been tested and proven. Citrus is very difficult to do because it takes a long time to plant one and then get the product that's proved that it's even worthy or better than the others. The biggest change that came about in citrus is that we were able to take one of the best varieties that was found in the world and then to use it in a radiation program that would then make it sterile of its seed production. And in which case now it's the market demand is I don't want any fruit that has seeds in it. And the ability to do that, they did that scientifically. But the variety that they used was found out in the offware in a little test trial with a, that was growing a plant that was then reproduced one time and then proven to be really good, which became now the most uh, abundant grown plants, uh, citrus plants in the world. And the one 120 years before that was found off of the Bahia in Brazil, which was an aberration of a sweet orange that was seedless that came to the United States, and we called it the Washington Naval. Both of those were found varieties are the most important selections that we made. So again, citrus is unique, and that's part of my interest and my, my curiosity is I like the uniqueness of that, the ability for us not to be able to predict it, not to know it, but then to go and look for these specialties that have come about. And so, again, there is uh, the citrus is in its own category in that sense versus uh, most any other products that you'll eat and consume from dairies. So we bred the cows and we made them more productive and, uh, and those types of things. Those were all bred predictable. But in the field of citrus, one of the grapes have all been done. And I can go down the list. But in the genre of citrus, we haven't been able to do that. It hasn't been successful. So that's a very big, unique part of the why I'm still here doing the citrus propagations 47 years later, thinking that I'll find another one. (laughs) I don't know if that answers your question, but the horticultural research is pretty interesting. And I think that's the second part of innovation. And in my case, it just happens to be that it's by a selection process. 
And then we just clone that selection like a red rose. Roses are kind of difficult to breed as well, but they, they can do a little better. Well, and the reason I asked the question, because I'm certainly interested in it, but it, there's an element of it seems like it's part of the intersection of, as you know, there's a lot of talk about automation, orchard design, and those sorts of things. And, yes. and some of those seemingly would back up all the way to the beginning. So I was kind of curious from your perspective, because with your background, I would presume you'd have the ability to take your experience and go project out trying to solve something. And so as you look at some of the, they're here, but they're emerging, you know, how do you address, you know, the possibility of automation? Is that an orchard design issue? You go from 3D to 2D? Are there varietal characteristics that need to be addressed? So it seemed to me those two areas kind of begin to overlap. Yeah. And citrus is another unique situation that when we look at it, you have a broccoli stock. It's predictable that broccoli matures all at the same time. So you go in and get a machine to cut it off. And I always talk to you about this is the, the closer to the ground, the easier it is. And as we get taller, we used to grow our trees 20 feet tall, 25 feet tall. So there's two parts to this. One of it is that how do you harvest it and how do we change that to mechanical? Well, the eye-hand coordination to pick a citrus fruit is very, very unique in the fact that you have to see in behind and around. And we've been working on the technology for a long time with the Citrus Research Board has tried that one too, that NASA how to articulate the cutting mechanism, but then how do you do the spatial design and that anticipation that you're going to be able to see that fruit to go clip it. And every time you clip one, that branch moves. So now your spatial design from your previous prediction has been changed. So, I mean, it was really complex when we get into the, the 3D that we do with this. So we have two problems. One is the cost of harvesting is one of the biggest costs that we do have for citrus in our, in our category. And so we have to look at ways how are we going to improve that. And with the problems that we have with now the predictability that man doesn't want to have to climb a ladder to go up 20 feet and the risk of it with ocean all that it's it's really difficult to pick that fruit we've got to come back down to the ground level closer to where it's easier okay so whether we're doing it from ladders sidewalls whether it's espaliated whether you know there's different techniques but the problem with citrus it grows pretty much in predictable shape it just keeps getting bigger bigger into a ball and, and it grows a new shield on the outside where it's this crop is harvested Part two of ours is that you can damage the fruit so easily with mechanics, whereas we can harvest citrus. We do harvest citrus mechanically, but we use that fruit for juice. And so then that one is now, it's if it's damaged, it's okay a little bit because it's going to be pasteurized and, and so we can do that. But when we need the perfect fruit, we have to be careful about how we articulate that harvest. And so that's been the biggest. One of the second problems that we have is that a farmer wants to look at production per acre. His thing is, how can I get the more volume per acre? You can grow these trees massively. You can get this huge production per acre, but then that inhibits the ability for you to go pick it easily. So what we're looking at and what we've been doing recently is doing high density, short, small plants, where then you may not get the massive amount of production on them, but you can get a more predictable one. So we have to get at a stage where you're balancing the ability to harvest it with your production level. And then you can cut your labor down because it's going to be a long time man. Is still going to be harvesting the oranges mechanically for a long time because you got to think of the thousands of acres you can do. Where now, if you mechanically harvest a strawberry inside a greenhouse, it's predictable on a smaller scale, you know, which ones. And it's a much more complex with a lot of different moving parts on it that I think I know we've discussed this and we need to keep looking at further how it's going to get into the citrus and be able to harvest it mechanically. But then it is, it's, if you look at it, one more part of that is, is look at the size of the citrus and the volume that you're talking about versus the volume of other products 
And so it's a bigger volumetric part of it that we have to deal with too, moving and manipulating all that in and out of that same acreage that we're dealing with. So there's a lot of complexities in that that we, we you know, would be, need to be detailed out a little bit more on a white paper to figure out what are our problems, how, what should we be striking at first. But I don't see in my lifetime, I'm sure we won't be mechanically harvesting for the fresh fruit product because of the problem of damaging the fruit so much by doing that yet. But can we keep looking for it? Yes. But I think one of the things that is more important is to keep practicing with architecture of the trees. And so one of the projects we're working on now is that we use what is called viroids, and we uh, will inoculate a tree in with, with a viroid with either 2A or 3B, some that we specified, and that will keep that tree at a small size so we don't have to do the pruning. And so you don't have the massive trees that we've had in the past and the difficulty of the harvesting in the massive size of tree is going to inhibit some of our ability to do that. But, you know, lucky be us here in the state of California, we've been able to have people harvest and work these fields as we've had them. And uh, it's beyond me how long we can keep that going, though, in this day and age. We'll see. But that's the tree horticulture and, and what we can do with that. The apple industry has probably been better at it in the sense right. that they've been able to do huge rootstocks. We haven't been able to find or design rootstocks yet that are really a, a predictable as far as the tree size and then the architecture of that tree. But there are some experiments. We are experimenting. With, we're trying it. But it's not for the volume that we have, to, the, the 280,000 acres of citrus that we have. How do we go out and then, one, change that overnight to be something that much different? So it takes attrition that, to redevelop something of that sort. So we're still an old paradigm because nobody, you know, 20, 30-year-old trees, people are going to keep it, you know, for another 20 or 30 years if they're investing into it now. So you got that much length of time before you can go and invent and to make it work into a into a hand harvested or a mechanically harvested operation. So I think there are a lot of farming techniques that are going to be good and more advantageous to doing that. But I think the citrus is going to be one of the latter ones to, to, to have that happen. Yeah, we're mechanically doing the nuts. The nuts are really, you know, that's why people are doing that because we've mechanized that. But I still, I don't understand why people would ever want to pick a lemon tree with all those thorns. I mean, it's just, a <laughs> so I, I, Dennis, I, I want to be, I, I want to look forward and think that that's a, there's some way that the innovation and that there'd be techniques to work, work in and around a citrus tree, but it's just the structure of itself that makes this so difficult. You know, we've just been talking the last several people that we've interviewed, biologicals were at the they were a topic that we discussed and you talked so much about beneficial insects and how we need to be mindful of the entire environment and growing the soils and all these sorts of things. So it feels like you also have some knowledge in that area. What kind of trial work have you done and where are you prioritizing these efforts? Yeah, I started right out of college raising insects to take one of our biggest pests on, which was the California red scale and started raising the aphytus malinus, which is a parasitoid for the red scale. And it's been the good step in the right direction and we can deal with that. That's one of our major pests. Other pests, we have one major pest that everybody has is called citrus thrip. And thrip has never been thwarted. Everybody has thrip, whether it's flower thrip, citrus thrip, every product in this world gets damaged by a tiny little insect thrip. And as much as we can do with chemistry to try to beat that thing, its generational ability to beat us is still there, and we're all affected by that. And so in our field in citrus, those are our two major situations that we have, is the blemishing, and well, in the same token, 
a pest can get so bad, it can stop the tree from growing. It can inhibit the fruit quality in a lot of different ways. And so how do we create the war against these, these insects? And I think chemistry is still the best that we have. I don't know of any other way. We have created some other areas where we're now using, we will put it with snow or white. We'll paint our trees white that keeps the insects at bay for some times. Well, I don't have a really good answer to this because I don't think there's enough insects to eat all the insects. People have tried the ladybugs. People have tried different things. I know that now in the lettuce, they get viruses and the microbiologies that are going on there is a big part. One of the things is, is that we've been mining this field out here with the roots and creating and taking away from the earth volumes of fruit. And that, well, that's all the NPK and micronutrients and everything has been taken out and consumed by the humans. But how do we put that back in there? Well, we've utilized the urea since the Haber-Bosch, the ability to make nitrogen. Well, now we've been augmenting, putting that back in. But that ramification is like, how do we balance that with ourselves? How do we predictably balance what we take out and put back in? Well, we are getting better at that. I think what we're doing is looking at some of the microflora and fauna inside the soils themselves and their ability to react and make that mining operation that's taking place with the roots more advantageous to the longevity of those plants. I think that's where we need to study. And I think we just got to look at the whole environmental spectrum of the agriculture in that world of what we're using and how we're using it. Now, again, there's climates that will take care of that for us because sometimes if it's too wet, then you got anaerobic problems. So your predictability is not good. And if it's too dry, then now we're hurting ourselves. So there's really the whole integration of the balance in the horticulture that we're still, we're good at and we're getting better at, and we're really good at it as a matter of fact, but it's not perfect. And so that's why we're you asked the question, well, how do we go out, Candace, and how do we then make these changes to make it better? And where can we do that? And I think, again, it's all integrated back to the mechanics and the horticultural. How do we get the plant that can best take care and we add to our water systems, all of the nutrient, all of the microbiology that we can put in there to make that plant the most advantageous to us, which is productivity. The bottom line of any agriculture is productivity. And we have to realize that, that the more productivity you got off of us, an acre of land is what the goal is. And then so, but that input, it has to be as well recognized. It's a broad area. How do we, with innovation, create those tasks and improvements against those problems, which we've outlined, which are, you know, from overuse of the horticultural plant itself, because it takes what it wants naturally, but then we have to predictably be able to put that back into the same location that we're taking it from. And then everybody needs to recognize that. So is there a golden rainbow out there that's going to tell us that we can keep farming forever? I'm not that optimistic. I think that we're at the apex of agriculture right now. And I think that we're very extremists and uh, extreme in the sense that we are living in our lifetime right now during these conversations. We're at the highest level of our abilities to manufacture food with the earth and soil and water and climate that we have. Now, I don't want to be a pessimist and say that we can't, through innovation and, and new techniques, be able to make it last longer, to, to hold this out as long as we can, as while we're inside this. I know that the, there are no two molecules ever in the same position. So when we use the word sustainable, 
it's kind of an oxymoron the fact that it's not, there is nothing sustainable on this earth and in our lifetime and in the presence of the universe it's all moving and so what we get to do is hold it at bay the longest and the best that we can while we're growing these plants while we're doing this feeding of the populations and again we have to choose which ones we're going to be growing. When we do agriculture, we have to look at how much agriculture we really need and how much are we doing in overabundance just for profits and going out on a whole, a whole nother subject, okay, which we won't touch on today. <laughs> well, I, I, and Candace and I really like the sort of comments you just made, you know, substantial and really some food for thought. So I almost feel sheepish as we begin to close for asking a more simplistic question, uh, you know, you've also been an innovator in terms of retail marketing. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're producing a product. So I'd kind of like to just kind of get your thoughts about the good old uh, citrus industry, it, you know, in terms of, you know, there's yeah. there's the juicing side of things. And you're right, you can get away with some things there because it's going to get juiced. On the other hand, there's the fresh side. And then you've got you've kind of got the whole I don't want to come down on one brand or another. Or I'll get in trouble because yeah. they're all <laughs> members. But, you yeah. know, the, the whole cutie side of things, you know, the smaller, you know, that I'm sure Candace is a mom. It's easier to send the kids yeah. to school with uh, with those. So just how do you look at the market? And then the follow up of that is what's your favorite variety? You know, when you think about hey, I'm taking some of this mm-hmm. home with me. What are yeah. you thinking about? We need an insider tip on, you know, when I go to the store, I'm looking for this. So, Dennis, the um, citrus is unique. It's been around since we discovered that we should eat citrus to get rid of scurvy. And to the boats that were traveling in the early times, everybody traveled with citrus. Of course, they brought grains across, but citrus has been one of the great plants. And grapes was a great one, but we learned to inebriate ourselves with that sooner than anything else. So that was a good, fun one. But citrus is still one of the great products that I think that we should keep in our repertoire as human mankind that is probably is, is desirable, necessary, and uh, very reasonable for us to think that that's one of our basic foods right, for all the goodness that it has. Now, as new varieties in citrus, in the world of citrus, which I'll only talk to, is that we started with oranges. And, you know, of course, we have lemons for our flavorings, and I'll always have that. And I prefer the lime to any of the citrus. I think it's one of the greatest ones ever found. But grapefruit has, in my time, has more or less passed on because of the inconvenience, one of it, the high acid of it for the other. But the preference of citrus now is moving towards color. Everybody wants red. We'll be introducing the, the brightest, reddest grapefruit there is in the world that isn't high acid. So this is just now coming on from the University of Florida. And so we think that that we can grow in California. So what we look at is what are the opportunities out there is what we're looking at. And how about the, the convenience of the mandarin was the basic of why we eat mandarins now. We The requisite was, is it easy to eat? Was it easy to peel? Was it easy to manage? And was it just the right size? And so when when the W. Murcott, when I saw that initially, it was like, wow, this flavor is one of the best. So I think flavor should drive it. And then you should, the ease of using using it. I mean, I never like cantaloupe because it's like, it's stinky and you, and you got this rind and then it rots so easily. But an orange is like the perfect vessel. It can, and, and that mankind's known that forever. It's all inside that one skin that's protecting it. And you can carry it for long distances and, and, and it'll just maybe desiccate us, but it'll still be good on the inside. So it's been one of the more perfect fruits that, you know, God's given us in that sense. But selecting the ones back to my beginning, how do you select the ones that get into the marketplace? 
that the, the mother wants and is going to make easy for them. And yes, the Mandarin fit that paradigm. We only have had that for 30 years now, 25 years. And now it's an expectation. So it's a, it, we're so accustomed to it. It became part of our lifestyle. But think about when we were kids, it was called a tangerine and it was full of seeds and they were tasty, but they weren't made available because of the convenience of it. And so everything in our life is convenient. We don't even wear shoes with shoelaces any longer because it's not convenient, right? And so we've changed our ways and we probably have Velcro shirts pretty soon or wear t-shirts, you know, we, we change our way of living so that it's easier, you know, we just... We want Teflon, so everything <laughs> slides off of it, and we don't have to wash the dishes. And in citrus, I think it's important that we keep the fact that, that what we eat has to be good, and it should be healthy, and it be, should be something that we'll want. As I always said, it should be addictive, because that means you want to come back and eat it again. So the number one note that I put in front of everybody and all of the people that you just mentioned, what is the most number one attribute? that you, It should be addictiveness for the right and positive reason. And uh, I have always believed that. Well, you know, Tom, I know all of your uh, peers in the industry, regardless of what they grow, I think they would like the consumers to be addicted to what they do. So that's a, I think that's kind of a good message to end on though. Candice, I think there may be a breaking news flash here that somebody who is renowned for citrus and oranges prefers limes. So you heard you heard it here first. <laughs> I <laughs> also like lime. lime. Well, there you go, Candice. I'm going to let you wrap this up. <laughs> lime and tequila go together. Yeah, well, Tom doesn't Absolutely. appear to know anything about that. Oh, he does. Okay. <laughs> Two best products on earth. There, there you, go. you go, Tom. I knew we could be fast friends. Candice, uh, I think uh, Tom has been a terrific guest and we've, co we've covered a lot of ground. I don't know about you, but I sure enjoyed our visit. It was great. Uh, it was so nice to see you, Tom. Thanks for being with us today. And guess welcome, what, Candace. Dennis, yeah. in closing, I would like to invite all of our listeners to now like and subscribe to Voices of the Valley. Sounds, sounds like a good idea and a good plan. So Tom, we're gonna, you're going to be the first person we're going to ask to be, tell your friends that you were on Voices of the Valley. Thank you for inviting me for Voices of the Valley. And uh, I hope I contributed to what your expectations are. You, you did. We enjoyed it and we learned a lot. And uh, Candace, let's come back next week. I'll be here. Thanks, sounds guys. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit reedleycollege.edu.